about that if you'd like to attend. And with that, we will transition into our sermon text this morning, our sermon time this morning, and our passages found in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And we've been talking a little bit about this this morning. I think Joel mentioned it in this concept of religious hypocrisy, and that's going to be our theme for this morning. In our passage this morning, we'll read it in a moment, we're going to see Jesus clear the temple. It's a familiar passage of Scripture. We're going to see Jesus drive out the sellers and the money changers from the temple with a whip of cords, with a weapon. This text, the clearing or the cleansing of the temple, contains what I'm accounting as a troubling story. It's a troubling and, in fact, an important story. It'd be very easy for us, in fact, to read this story and to look down on the sellers and the money changers. It would be easy to to stereotype the temple practices as corrupt. And as we'll see, well, that wouldn't be entirely wrong. There was a lot of corruption that was going on. This assessment is easy enough. It's easy for you and for me to typecast the temple and its practices as pernicious. Adding to this is the fact that Jesus himself, as we know, brings a judgment against the sellers and the money changers. Here's a question I asked myself this week as I was working through this passage and studying this passage. This is the question I asked myself. Do do I see myself standing with Jesus, driving out the sellers and the money changers, or do I see myself as one of the sellers and the money changers fleeing the temple at the direction of Jesus? Maybe there's a place for both. But I think our tendency, I know my tendency, is to see myself standing with Jesus. We don't, in the first place, consider the ways in which we might be more concerned with, you might say, turning a profit and turning to the Lord. We overlook the places in which our agenda or our pet themes become preeminent. As I've said, this text contains a troubling and an important story. It's because I believe the the further we, we move away from seeing this story on a historical level, that being Jesus confronting someone else's religious hypocrisy, the closer we move to applying this story to our lives and the closer we come to seeing the ways in which Jesus confronts our religious hypocrisy. And so with that, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And again, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Thus says the, the Word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. God in heaven, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you have not uh, left us without some kind of confrontation. Lord, you clear your temple. You rid it of what's wrong and what's evil. And Lord, we pray this morning, I pray that as we work through this passage, Lord, that we would not see ourselves clearing the temple, Lord, but we would open our hearts to this idea that you need to clear us of religious hypocrisy, Lord. Purify us. Search our hearts, Lord. And so we plead with you, Lord, that you would, because of this passage, because of this text, help us to be more like Jesus this morning. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Here's our thesis statement for this morning. It's on the PowerPoint there. Jesus will confront our religious hypocrisy with three truths. We'll see three truths that Jesus confronts, confronts us with this morning. The first one is this. The scope of religious hypocrisy is self. The scope or aim of religious hypocrisy is self. In verse 13, we're given the setting of this event. It's the time of the Passover. This, of course, as we know, is the most holy holiday for the Jews. The holiday or the, the festival lasted an entire week and concluded with a meal, the eating of a roasted lamb together with bitter herbs. During the time of such a holiday, Jerusalem would have swelled with people. Every man from 12 years up was supposed to attend this festival in Jerusalem. As it is, Jesus has chosen a very public place to begin his ministry. While the miracle at the wedding in Cana no doubt created some kind of buzz, I'm sure it did, this miracle was more of a private nature. It was in an obscure place in Cana, and it was at an invitation-only event. Jerusalem, however, would have been much different. And not only that, but the temple itself. What Jesus was about to do was going to set him on a path, you might say, of no return. Furthermore, it's fitting that Jesus might begin such a ministry, his ministry, at the Passover feast, which found its substance or its meaning in the death of Jesus himself. Verse 14 tells us what Jesus found in the temple. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Listen to how Farrar in his work, The Life of Christ, describes the situation. He writes, There in the actual court of the Gentiles, 
steaming with the heat in the burning April day, and filling the temple with stench and filth, were penned whole flocks of sheep and oxen, while the drovers and pilgrims stood bartering and bargaining around them. There were the men with the wicker cages filled with doves, and under the shadows of the arcade formed by quadruple rows of Corinthian columns sat the money changers, with their tables covered with piles of various small coins, while as they reckoned and wrangled in the most dishonest of trades, their greedy eyes twinkled with the lust of gain. And this was the entrance court to the Most High, the court which was a a witness that the house should be a house of prayer for all the nations, had been degraded into a place which for foulness was more like shambles and for bustling commerce, commerce more like a densely crowded bazaar. While the lowing of oxen, the bleeding of sheep, the babble of many languages, the huckstering and wrangling, the clinking of money and of balances might be heard in the adjoining courts, disrupting the chant of the Levites and the prayers of the priests, end quote. It should be said, there's some necessity for these animals, and there is some need of banking, that would, would have been needed there in, in Jerusalem in the temple. For the Jews, animal sacrifice was an important part of their religion. We know that. And there were some who traveled to Jerusalem without an animal to sacrifice. Therefore, they would have needed to make a purchase. Furthermore, some might have traveled from faraway lands, and they would have needed to exchange their money to pay the temple tax. All of that would have been good and needed. I've told you that what Jesus is confronting in our passage is religious hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? From the Greek language, it means to play a part, to pretend. In its pure form, and in the Greek mind, a hypocrite is simply an actor, puts a mask on. It's a man or a woman who who might put a mask on and act like someone they are not. The term, however, as we understand it today, came to be known or used negatively. It's a negative term. Describes a person who projects one thing, but inside something else is lurking. They are playing a, per, playing a part. This person claims to have a certain moral standard, but behind the mask, something else is going on. In fact, They themselves are not living up to the very moral standard that they affirm. That's what a hypocrite is. We understand that. Think for just a moment about the situation that Jesus encountered at the temple. What was the the central issue or problem that Jesus encountered there? If the selling of oxen, sheep, and pigeons was required for the practice of their religion, well, it couldn't have been that. And as I understand the law, there's no prohibition against the practice of of money changing. These travelers would, in fact, need to exchange their money. Certainly kings and, and rulers are permitted to have their own currency and coinage. There's nothing in the law against that. But these money changers, in fact, you might say this entire system created a monopoly in which these men would, cha- would charge exorbitant prices, exorbitant exchange rates. What Jesus found in the temple was an entire system, an entire industry designed to exploit the people of God. It was a system that used religion to gain an advantage over others. And it happened 
in what was originally designed to be the most sacred place, the temple of the living God. What did Jesus think of all this? Well, look at verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Well, Jesus makes short order of the problem. If while reading this, you feel somewhat rushed, that's intended. The verbs are are written in such a way, they're stacked up in such a way, it helps us see the point and to see it quickly. Lenski says, they state what was done, done in short order, done decisively, completely, begun, finished, then and there. Jesus drove them out. He poured out their coins. He overturned their tables. And like it or not, he did this with a weapon in his hand. You can almost see Jesus standing among the crowd. I imagine all of these noises and all of these people, and Jesus is there, and he picks up a couple pieces of rope. And there are there the God of the universe, our Savior, is shaping and molding a whip. It's a fascinating reality. There, there must have been a moment at some point when he looked at what he had created and he said, this will do. And just like that, a snap, a crack. And you can see the, the chaos and the, the commotion that instantly ensues. With a, with a stampede, the men fleeing their shacks and their stations. Jesus moving through the temple area, clearing out both men and animals with a scourge. We might have thought Jesus only used such a de- device on the animals, but the text is clear. The implement was constructed to rid them, those who were selling, to rid them from the courtyard. Moving through the courtyard, Jesus scraped the tables of the money changers clean. Not only this, but he he overturned their tables. He scattered all their coins. It's very probable that these tables were actually very low tables and the the men squatted behind them. And so you can imagine Jesus kicking over their tables. And in the midst of all of this, we hear this booming voice of Jesus. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Let me remind you that this is the very first event in Jesus' public ministry. This is where it begins. Jesus begins his ministry with an act of holy wrath and indignation. And let me remind you as well that all of this, Jesus never loses self-control. Jesus is always in perfect control of the situation. In the midst of both panic and white-hot anger, the nation of Israel encountered Jesus. And these words from Jesus are not the words of of some religious zealot attempting to, to vindicate the holiness of the temple. They're not the words of a mere prophet who speaks in the name of Yahweh. These words, this booming voice, is the voice of the Son of God. When Jesus commands, when he makes this command, do not make my father's house a house of trade, he he equates the temple 
with a place in which merchandise is sold. This, this word trade in the Greek, emporion, it's very similar to our word emporium. Sounds very similar. Then and now the word refers to a marketplace. We know that word. What's implied in this idea of an emporium or a marketplace? It's a place where we make a profit. And that's what these men are after. But not just any profit, it exists for personal gain. Therefore, Jesus is not confronting the act of buying and selling. I don't even believe Jesus is concerned that this happens on the temple grounds. As we've said, they would need to buy animals. They would need to exchange their money for the temple tax. There's nothing wrong with this. What then is Jesus addressing? Well, all the, are, what, what, what are these sellers and money changers doing that would so excite Jesus to such a degree? As I've suggested in our outline of this passage, their scope or their aim, you might say, was self. If they only knew, if they only recalled, if they only understood, that Scripture says that the devious person is an abomination to the Lord. But the upright are in his confidence that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. That treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. That the wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. All this is in the Proverbs. The merchants used religion as a means of personal gain. That's what they were doing. They exploited people on the back of Yahweh. They used the holy and righteous prescriptions of God to achieve personal gain. The vendors took advantage of traveling worshipers by charging inflated prices. The unclean were forced, uh, the vendors uh, had a system designed that would deem animals purchased elsewhere as unclean. When, when they would bring animals in, they would say, oh, that's not good enough. And so then they would, make, they would charge more to purchase an animal from the temple. It was an entire system designed to exploit the people. The money changers, likewise, they charged a 12% fee to exchange money. This was so profitable that during a temple raid in 54 BC, over $2 million in silver was, was extracted from the temple. And it was written that they didn't even get close to getting it all out. I said in our introduction that this was a, and is a troubling passage. I believe this is true because this passage challenges me to think about the ways in which I have used religion for personal gain. Jesus is not only simply confronting their religious hypocrisy, he is confronting my religious hypocrisy. He is teaching us how to think about his business. Here we can make individual and corporate church-wide applications. Think about this as individuals. How have we allowed personal, personal gain to cloud our service? This personal gain might come in tangible form, as it did for these sellers and money changers. They, they earned a profit, a tangible profit from it. But it might also come in the form of fame or recognition. In what ways are we using our religion or our service of God as a means for personal gain? Is it possible 
that you and I, in some areas of our lives, are actually exploiting people or pursuing prestige on the back of Yahweh. When our actions and our activities done in the name of Christ become more about personal recognition, we have become religious hypocrites. What about as a church? Have we allowed personal gain to cloud our service? The church, our church, is not above this sin of religious hypocrisy. Are there ways in which our body has succumbed to programs and agendas that have little to do with Christ? Gary Burge writes, religious politics may be the order of the day in congregations or denominational headquarters. Leadership may succumb to pressures to be modern or contemporary, or leaders may succumb to pressures to defend empty tradition and habit. He adds how this passage challenges us to look at some care, or with some care, at our own house. He goes on, it asks me to imagine what would happen if Jesus were to come for a visit. Would he be outraged, outraged by battles between choirs and contemporary worship teams with struggles over plans to build or not to build? Would he question words spoken that have lost meaning or words that take their meaning from the pundits of the secular, secular arena? Is there, is there a chance, he says, that, he would, that Jesus would interrupt things? I think it's a pretty generous way of putting it, to interrupt things. Jesus did, in fact, interrupt things. And it may be that he would interrupt us. If you find yourself interrupted this morning, if the Lord has revealed to you areas in which you are exploiting others, promoting self on the back of Yahweh, I want to remind you of some really good news. <laughs> because, friends, there is some really, really good news for the religious hypocrite. And I want to do that using the remaining of our passage, which brings us to our second point, and it's this. The solution for religious hypocrisy is sacrifice. The solution for religious hypocrisy, hypocrisy excuse me, is sacrifice. Now, our first clue that this is true, comes from verse 17. I got stuck. There it is. Excuse me. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I think this verse is somewhat misunderstood. The phrase, will consume me, is usually taken to mean that the zeal for God's house inwardly consumed Jesus that it somehow used up his strength and vitality, that he was spent because of it. His, his love for God's house, it swallowed him up, it consumed him, took his energy. I think that's, on the surface, it looks like that's what that means, this verse means. But I don't really think that's the sense of the passage in question. This is a quote from Psalm 69. Going to Psalm 69, we'd see that a little bit of a different nuance to this verse. Verse 69, or excuse me, Psalm 69 is more about suffering than expressing uh, righteous indignation for the things of God. In the very next verse, Psalm 69, 10, 
we read, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Well, a reproach is just an abuse or an insult. What David is saying is that those who hated you, God, their reproaches, their insults against you, God, because of my love for you and my wanting to obey you, Lord, those reproaches and insults have come against me now. That's what David is saying in Psalm 69, 10. It's about suffering. Those who hate God now hate me. That's what the verse says. It was zeal or passion for the things of God that led to the suffering that David experienced. Likewise, it is zeal or passion for the things of God that led to the suffering that Jesus experienced. That's what this verse is about. So his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, will kill me. Zeal for your house will lead to my death. It's a, it's a subtle nuance difference there. Jesus is talking about his life dying. And so, as I've said before, I believe this is the first clue that the solution for religious hypocrisy is sacrifice. In verses 18 through 20, we're given an interaction between Jesus and the Jews, and, and here we have another clue. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? Now, although we might have expected a strong response from the Jews, given all that Jesus did, clearing out the temple the way he did, really what the Jews are after is credentials. They want to see a sign that will vindicate him for interrupting the temple arrangements. What sign do you do to show us that you, you're entitled to do this? And Jesus answers, as he sometimes and oftentimes does, in a, in a riddle. Gives them a kind of riddle. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews have their sign, and it's right in front of them. This phrase from Jesus is a, a refusal to play their games. As we'll see, Jesus knows what's in the heart of men. Jesus knows that this is unbelief. That demands a sign. This veiled yet pointed statement from Jesus fits the men who make the demand. They want a sign, but Jesus knows that if he tells them outright, they would only resent it. In this way, this riddle stands as a judgment, just like the parables. At some point, Jesus judges his audience and said, I'm not going to speak in a way that you can understand. It's a judgment against those people. If you want to know more, come and follow me. So we have the judgment. It's a judgment against these Jews, and it's a judgment against all religious hypocrisy. The Jews respond in verse 20. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build the temple, and will you raise it up in three days? This temple that they're talking about is originally built by Solomon. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. It was rebuilt by Nehemiah and Ezra. Maybe you recall some over a year ago we did a study through that, through Nehemiah and Ezra. This rebuilt temple was somewhat inferior 
And under Herod, the temple was rebuilt to the grandeur of its form in Jesus' day, which is why it was called Herod's Temple. And so when we read about this 46 years, that's really what they're referring to, is they're referring to that, that rebuilding under Herod's rulership. What this comic confirms is, well, their unbelief. These religious hypocrites are not interested in understanding. They only want to offer their opinions and seek justification for their actions. Now, I told you that the solution for religious hypocrisy is sacrifice. And I've given you a couple clues, but in verse 21, it kind of fully emerges. Verse 21, we hit this commentary from John. He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus has no interest in rebuilding or raising a physical temple. The secret to this riddle is this. Jesus is speaking of another temple. And although the physical temple would one day fall, Jesus is making a prophetic statement about his death and resurrection. Here we have a a most compelling reality. In this moment, when Jesus had cleared the temple, there stood side by side the beautiful type, the temple, and the heavenly anti-type, Jesus, the earthly sanctuary and the Son of God in his human body. The sanctuary, which is the shadow, and the Savior, which is the substance. On a theological level, Jesus is teaching us that He is going to put an end to man-made, man-arranged religion. He's going to put in place spiritual worship. There's going to be an end to animal sacrifice, to priestly ritual, to temple practice. Jesus came to give us a new way to come to God. We no longer come to Him through human ritual, but as the author of Hebrews says, in fact, what we read this morning, we have a better hope. What these Jews couldn't see was that the temple and the temple practices were no longer the mediator between God and man. The mediator was Jesus Himself. The Jews demanded credentials from Jesus. They wanted to know what warrant He had for clearing the temple. The answer is this, his death and resurrection. Can you see the the beautiful complexity between the reproof and the resurrection? Between the citation and the sacrifice? What, What these Jews needed to see more than anything else was that their solution for what was the solution to their religious hypocrisy They demanded a sign, and he says the sign is this, I will die in order for you to be forgiven. That's the sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Can you see the the beautiful complexity between, again, this reproof and resurrection? What we need to see more than anything else is the solution to our religious hypocrisy, and the solution is found in sacrifice. Not our sacrifice, not more labor, but the solution is found in His sacrifice, in the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of our Savior. I'm not sure where you find yourself on the scale of religious hypocrisy. That is, I don't know to what degree you've come to mark yourself as a religious hypocrite. I do know that the sin lurks in all of us. 
None of us are above it. Yet I know also, and I have this assurance, and it's from 30, Psalm 37, 24, though we fall, we shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds our hand. Proverbs 24, 16 says, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again. God never means to tip us over that He wouldn't pull us up again. This is demonstrated in, I believe, in no greater way than through the message of salvation. Like the clearing of the temple, the message of salvation confronts our sin. It tells us that we are religious hypocrites. And like the clearing of the temple, the message of salvation offers a grand solution. The solution to our religious hypocrisy is sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Savior Jesus Christ who died as our substitute. It was Jesus who accepted the penalty that we deserved for our religious hypocrisy. And having an indestructible life, we read that this morning, it was Him who was raised from the dead. Look at verse 22. When therefore He was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. Although it took some time in their minds for them to connect these events, the words Jesus was speaking, the disciples would eventually understand all of these things, and they would both believe the Scriptures and the Word that Jesus spoke. There is one final truth this morning told you there were three. One final truth from Jesus that confronts our religious hypocrisy, and it's this. The state of our religious hypocrisy, or the state of the religious hypocrite, you might say, is suspicious. And we find that in verses 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Although we hear nothing else from the Jews who questioned Jesus, apparently there were many who believed in Jesus as a result of his signs. These verses reveal that there's a kind of faith, a kind of faith that's shallow, superficial, it's disingenuous. It's not true saving faith. It's a faith that might even see some wonder in Jesus. It sees the sign. It believes. But Jesus doesn't entrust himself to it because he knows the heart. We read about such bogus faith in the parable of the sower. You remember that parable? Recall the seed that falls on the rocky and the thorny ground. It sprouts up. There's a response of faith. One of them even says it's received with joy. But because the heart is not changed, they fall away when trials come or worldly riches beckon. It's these of which John says Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Why? 
He sees a, a facade inside. Recall how he saw Nathaniel in Nathaniel a true heart of faith. Here we find the opposite. Now, I confess, I admit, I'm not entirely sure why John speaks of this spurious faith at this point in the narrative. Even our subtitle, our titles here kind of branch out this verse, this section, like it's somehow different from the above passage. I'm not exactly sure how these verses relate to the story of Jesus clearing the temple. There seems to be like two things happening here. Whatever the connection might be, here's what I know to be true. The glorified Christ sees to the bottom of every heart. He detects every superficial confession. He knows it because He knows our hearts. He identifies every trace of indifference or hostility. And he, He can dig up and root out even the worst religious hypocrisy. I know that to be true. So how do we find assurance that Jesus, on His part, will entrust Himself to us? Certainly, it begins with faith, confessing belief in Him. Certainly, it begins there. But we must not stop there. We must press forward in that faith. And the, 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 the best way that I can find to capture that is in David's words in Psalm 139. To press into the Lord and say, search me, O God. Know my heart. You already know it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See, open the doors of your heart and let the Lord in. If there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's to acknowledge that God already knows our religious hypocrisy. And to cry out that He would search us, and He would dig it up or root it out. And then we would move on in our walk with Him. This, I believe, is how we assure, we find assurance in the fact that Jesus will entrust himself to us. It's to, you might say, go all the way. In closing, these three truths give us a picture of salvation. With the first truth, the scope of religious hypocrisy is self, we discover that God hates our religious hypocrisy. The second truth, the the solution for religious hypocrisy is sacrifice. This one reveals how how God offers us a solution to our religious hypocrisy. And that solution is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Finally, this third truth, the state of the religious hypocrite is suspicious, declares to us that salvation For the religious hypocrite, which is the context here, only comes through genuine saving faith. And so we have a picture of salvation. God certainly knows our heart. And as we close, we have an opportunity to to make our faith genuine through song, through prayer, and through Christian fellowship. We have that opportunity even this morning. I'm going to close with just some words from J.C. Ryle. This is how he closed this this, uh, sermon on this passage. He cried out, Lord, I am a poor sinner. Maybe this is our cry. Lord, I am a poor sinner, but I am in earnest. I am true. 
Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Thou knowest all hearts. And thou knowest that weak as my heart is, it is a heart that cleaves to thee. May this be our prayer this morning. I'm going to invite Joel and the musicians up, and I'm just going to briefly pray. God in heaven, we ask for your strength this morning, that this would be our prayer and our cry. In Jesus' name, amen.